Welcome to Exploring the Catechism of the Council of Trent in a Year. I'm Mark Langley. And today we continue our study of the second article of our faith as set forth in the Apostles' Creed. Uh, in the last two episodes, we talked about the very first two words in that article, Jesus and Christ. Today we will continue our study of the words, His only Son, our Lord. And so let us begin by reading the section in the Catechism called His Only Son. In these words, mysteries more exalted with regard to Jesus are proposed to the faithful as objects of their belief and contemplation, namely that he is the Son of God and true God, like the Father who begot him from eternity. We also confess that he is the second person of the Blessed Trinity, equal in all things to the Father and the Holy Ghost. For in the divine persons, nothing unequal or unlike should exist, or even be imagined to exist, since we acknowledge the essence, will, and power of all to be one. This truth is both clearly revealed in many passages of Holy Scripture and sublimely announced in the testimony of St. John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. But when we are told that Jesus is the Son of God, we are not to understand anything earthly or mortal in his birth, but are firmly to believe and piously to adore that birth by which from all eternity the Father begot the Son, a mystery which reason cannot fully conceive or comprehend, and at the contemplation of which, overwhelmed as it were with admiration, we should exclaim with the prophet, Who shall declare his generation? On this point, then, we are to believe that the Son is of the same nature, of the same power and wisdom with the Father, as we more fully profess in these words of the Nicene Creed, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, born of the Father before all ages, God of God, light of light, true God of true God, begotten, not made, consubstantial to the Father, by whom all things were made. Among the different comparisons employed to elucidate the mode and manner of this eternal generation, that which is borrowed from the production of thought in our mind seems to come nearest to its illustration. And hence, St. John calls the Son the Word. For as our mind, in some sort, understanding itself, forms an image of itself, which theologians express by the term Word, so God, as far as we may compare human things to divine, understanding himself, begets the eternal word. It is better, however, to contemplate what faith proposes and in the sincerity of our souls to believe and confess that Jesus Christ is true God and true man, as God begotten of the Father before all ages, as man born in time of Mary, his virgin mother. And finally, the last paragraph in this section while we thus acknowledge his twofold nativity, we believe him to be one Son, because his divine and human natures meet in one person. As to his divine generation, he has no brethren or co-heirs, being the only begotten Son of the Father, while we mortals are the work of his hands. But if we consider his birth as man, he not only calls many by the name of brethren, but treats them as such since he admits them to share with him the glory of his, of his paternal inheritance. 
They are those who by faith have received Christ the Lord and who really and by works of charity show forth the faith which they profess in words. Hence the apostle calls them. Hence the apostle calls Christ the firstborn amongst many brethren. And so that's the conclusion of the uh, the paragraphs devoted to the words his only son in the second article. And uh, it's clear from anyone who reads them that the uh, authors of this text um, benefited from reading the Summa Theologica of St. Thomas Aquinas uh, when he treats of the procession of the word from the Father as it talks about the sublime mystery of the Trinity. And so the Catechism um, tells us that, um, it quotes the prophet Isaiah in uh, chapter 53, verse 8, who shall declare his generation? And uh, it quotes the Nicene Creed, um, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, etc. Um, but the passage that I'm thinking uh, from St. Thomas that does a nice job explaining the same thing and, and which we see echoed in this text um, is not only in the Summa Theologica, but is also in a more sh uh, brief way laid out in the Compendium Theologiae that St. Thomas wrote uh, for um, a much shorter treatise for, I think, lay, lay readers. And um, so in the chapter 37 of the Compendium Theologiae, there's a chapter entitled uh, The Word in God, whether there's a word in God, or, or rather the um, um, how there is a word in God. And uh, let's just read from that chapter because he talks about this first, the first of the two processions in God himself, uh, the first procession by which the Son or the Word is born, so to speak. And so we read, We take from the doctrine previously laid down that God understands and loves himself. Likewise, that understanding and willing in, in him are not something distinct from his essence. Since God understands himself, and since all that is understood is in the person who understands, God must be in himself as the object understood is in the person understanding. But the object understood, so far as it is in the one who understands, is a certain word of the intellect. We signify by an exterior word what we comprehend interiorly in our intellect. For words, according to the philosopher, are signs of intellectual concepts. Hence, we must acknowledge in God the existence of his word. And so there, in a very brief paragraph, St. Thomas lays down this intellectual procession uh, that the Catechism alludes to, that um, that God understands himself, God reflects upon himself and understands himself perfectly. And um, he says that it, with human understanding, when we reflect on things, we form an interior concept 
of the thing. And so God forms an interior concept of himself when he reflects upon himself. And that interior concept we call the word of the intellect. And St. Thomas quoting um, Aristotle in his book De Interpretatione talks about how the exterior words that we form, you know, the, the ordinary uh, use of the term word referring to the exterior word that we speak is they are, those are nothing other than signs of the intellectual concepts that we form. So um, thus we see that there are the word, the word is spoken in two senses. We have an exterior word and we have an interior word. With God, when he understands himself, we say he forms an interior word of himself. And that interior word is the, is the um, perfect knowledge of God himself, of himself. And that knowledge is the Son. And St. Thomas continues in chapter 38 of this Compendium Theologiae. He talks about how the word, the interior word, is a sort of conception of the mind. So he says, what is contained in the intellect as an interior word is by common usage said to be a conception of the intellect. A being is said to be conceived in a corporeal way if it is formed in the womb of a living animal by a life-giving energy in virtue of the active function of the male and the passive function of the female in which the conception takes place. The being thus conceived shares in the nature of both parents and resembles them in species. And he continues, in a similar manner, what the intellect comprehends is formed in the intellect. The intelligible object being, as it were, the active principle and the intellect the passive principle. And so he, uh, there he simply talks about the idea that we have this very interesting word in our language when we say, um, when we talk about the things that we think, we, we talk about, about them as conceptions of the intellect. We, we've conceived an idea. So that's a very interesting um, a way of expressing the formation of thoughts in our mind, sort of a, an analogy to the um, conception that takes place in the living animals, but in a much higher and intellectual way, uh, the conception of our intellect. So. So the word God forms of himself might be said to be a conception of his intellect. And therefore, if we jump just in one more chapter, we see in chapter 40 of the same compendium, he says, Hence, in the rule of Catholic faith, we are taught to profess belief in the Father and the Son by saying, I believe in God the Father and in his Son, and lest anyone on hearing Father and Son mentioned should have any notion of carnal generation by which among us men, father, and son receive their designation, John the Evangelist, to whom were revealed heavenly mysteries, substitutes word for son, so that we may understand that the generation is intellectual. And so there Thomas just beautifully explains this whole idea that when um, St. John, as the authors of the Catechism also quote when he says, in the, be in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
I think it's marvelous that they interpret that passage um, like St. Thomas and the, and the fathers, that the interpretation of this passage says is that in the beginning, namely in God himself, was the word. God conceived a word in himself. God is the beginning. He's the alpha and the origin. Um, and in, in him was conceived a word. And that word was with God. And further, that word was God. And so the Catechism of the Council of Trent talks about the equality and um, the majesty that the, the word shares with God the Father, uh, that there's no distinction according to um, equality. Um, it's, uh, he, in the words of the Catechism, says, we also confess that he is the second person of the Blessed Trinity, equal in all things to the Father and the Holy Ghost. For in the divine persons, nothing unequal or unlike should exist. So that's sort of a brief exposition of this of this word, his only son, that we call, we call the word that God conceives of himself, the son. And let's just continue a little further in the Catechism of the Council of Trent with the words, our Lord, and try to finish up this article. So we read, Of our Savior, many things are recorded in sacred scripture. Some of these, it is evident, apply to him as God and some as man. Because from his two natures he received the different properties which belong to both. Hence we say with truth that Christ is almighty, eternal, infinite, and these attributes he has from his divine nature. Again we say of him that he suffered, died, and rose again, which are properties manifestly that belong to his human nature. And so we, we see that Christ, uh, the Catechism speaks about the two natures um, that uh, constitute our Lord. He has a human nature and a divine nature, and therefore we see that uh, Scripture speaks of him in, in different ways, sometimes saying things concerning his human nature, such as he died, uh, suffered, died, and rose again. And then uh, when we talk about him as being almighty, eternal, and infinite, uh, those are attributes of his divine nature. The Catechism continues, Besides these terms, there are others common to both natures, as when, in this article of the Creed, we say, Our Lord. If, then, this name applies to both natures, rightly is he to be called our Lord. For as he, as well as the Father, is the eternal God, so is he Lord of all things equally with the Father. And as he and the Father are not the one, one God, and the other, another God, but one and the same God, so likewise, he and the Father are not the one, one Lord, and the other, another Lord. And, and we continue, as man, he is also for many reasons appropriately called our Lord. First, because he is our Redeemer who delivered us from sin. He deservedly acquired the power by which he truly is and is called our Lord. This is the doctrine of the Apostle. And here we are quoting uh, St. Paul, he humbled himself, becoming obedient unto death, even to the death of the cross, for which cause God also hath exalted him, and hath given him a name which is above all names, 
that at the name of Jesus every knee should bend of those that are in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that the Lord Jesus Christ is in the glory of God the Father. And of himself, he said, after his resurrection, all power is given to me in heaven and in earth. He is also called Lord because in one person both natures, the human and the divine, are united. And even though he had not died for us, he would have yet deserved by this admirable union to be constituted common Lord of all created things, particularly of the faithful who obey and serve him with all the fervor of their souls. And so there we have the ending of this section devoted to the two words, our Lord. And the Catechism makes several interesting points there. Um, one is that Jesus is Lord and this, um, this term, Lord, is applied to, to his nature as God and to his nature as man. He is Lord um, in both of his natures, uh, but in, in a singular way. So uh, that term is applied to him equally. So when we, say, when we say Jesus is almighty, we speak of his nature his divine nature, and when we say Jesus died, we speak of his human nature. But when we say Jesus is Lord, that's a term that is common to both natures. The Catechism then continues by saying that we call him our Lord, and it says because he is our Redeemer who delivered us from sin. So, um, And then finally, he says that he is Lord in union with God the Father and the Holy Spirit, the Holy Ghost. Um, he, he, is, he is Lord uh, with the other two members of the Holy Trinity, but they are Lord in the singular. We, we, don't, say that, we don't say he is, um, we believe in our Lords. We believe in one Lord uh, because that Lordship is shared in common. And exercised in uh, in common and uh, in union with one another, uh, uh, the members of the Trinity um, don't exercise different lordships, but exercise lordship over all of us as one God. Finally, let's just get, um, finish this section, this second article. Uh, the Catechism of the Council of Trent uh, devotes the final couple of paragraphs. The subsection is called duties owed to Christ our Lord. And so we read, It remains therefore that the pastor remind the faithful that from Christ we take our name and are called Christians, that we cannot be ignorant of the extent of his favors, particularly since by his gift of faith we are enabled to understand all these things. We, above all others, are under the obligation of devoting and consecrating ourselves forever like faithful servants to our Redeemer and our Lord. This indeed we promised at the doors of the church when about to be baptized, for we then declared that we renounced the devil and the world and gave ourselves unreservedly to Jesus Christ. But if to be enrolled as soldiers of Christ, we, consecrate, we consecrated ourselves by so holy and solemn a profession to our Lord, what punishments should we not deserve if after our entrance into the church and after having known the will and laws of God, and receive the grace of the sacraments, 
we were to form our lives upon the precepts and maxims of the world and the devil, just as though when cleansed in the waters of baptism, we had pledged our fidelity to the world and to the devil and not to Christ the Lord and Savior. What heart so cold as what's what heart so cold as not to be inflamed with love by the kindness and goodwill exercised toward us by so great a Lord, who though holding us in his power and dominion as slaves ransomed by his blood, yet embraces us with such ardent love as to call us not servants, but friends and brethren. This assuredly supplies the most just and perhaps the strongest claim to induce us always to acknowledge, venerate, and adore him as our Lord. And so there the authors conclude the, their treatment of the second article of the Apostles' Creed and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. And we see that they take every single word in the Creed seriously, and, and, and uh, they tell us that each word contains wisdom that we need to contemplate. And I think we've made a good beginning to, to think about these words. These are every word in our creed we say all the time, deserve frequent contemplation and repeated, um, repeated thoughts as we go deeper and deeper into the truths of our faith. Um, the final words here about this section, Jesus Christ our Lord. Um, we remember that this catechism was written especially uh, to, for priests, ad parochos in Latin, and instructing the priest what they are to remind the faithful of each, each, uh, each week when they pray, it, when they preach a homily. And um, so, so that's the end of Article 2. And I hope that uh, you have enjoyed you, that you're enjoying this uh, treatment of the um, that the authors make of the uh, of the creed. We will begin Article Three in our next episode. Uh, the words of that are: "Who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary." I'm grateful that you're with me uh, studying this catechism uh, together, and I hope that you'll join me next time as we continue our study. I'm Mark Langley. Thank you for joining me in this episode of Exploring the Catechism of the Council of Trent in a Year.